we continue in our sermon series in Matthew 1, 1 through 17, our Advent series where we're looking at the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew's gospel. I'll ask you to, to bear with me as uh, I'm perhaps losing my voice somewhat. It sounds a lot uh, worse than it actually is, so uh, please be patient with me, and uh, Lord willing, we'll, we'll make it through. And uh, on the other side of this sermon, uh, with good gifts from the Lord's Word here, which I'm sure that we will. Um, but let's look at Matthew 1, 1 through 17 here, and let's listen with reverence, with joy to the Word of our God as Matthew writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit concerning Jesus and His family tree. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matin, and Matin the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we do pray that you would bless and anoint the, the reading and, and preaching of your word now with the grace and the presence and the power, uh, with the presence of the Holy Spirit. We pray that he would so illumine our minds and hearts to know and to understand what it is you are saying here, and that you, he would so empower the, the strength of our wills and lives to live according to what we see and find here, all to the great glory and honor of your name and the advancement of the fame of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. You can be seated. Well, I wonder if you've ever noticed how common and prevalent 
the theme of home is and many of the stories that we know and, and love. Uh, my eldest is a, a voracious reader, and, and oftentimes when I go to Trader Joe's here in Kettering, I just kind of accidentally find myself in the used bookstore next door. I don't know how it happens, but every time I find myself in the used bookstore and I walk out with a stack of books, it's a complete accident. Um, and that happened this last week. And uh, I was there looking for a, a, a new book for my eldest to read, and and so I picked up The Wizard of Oz for her there, uh, which got me thinking about how prominent this theme of home is in our beloved stories. Of, of course, The Wizard of Oz is, is the book and, and later the movie in which we find that oft-repeated famous phrase that there's no place like home. And The Wizard of Oz is, is hardly unique in this theme. It's, it's incredibly prevalent. Um, I was just texting this last week with another man in our church about Homer and his great Greek epics, which got me thinking about the Odyssey, a story that so vividly displays this longing, this, this longing for home. The, the, the story begins, of course, with Odysseus sitting exiled from home on this, it's really, he's on a paradisical island with this Greek goddess who would keep him there forever. It's supposed to be amazing. And yet he finds himself sitting on this beach every morning, looking in the direction of home with salty tears streaming down his face. And, and, and the whole story is about Odysseus unceasingly, unstoppably seeking to get home. At one point, he just plainly states the kind of driving impetus of the whole story, saying, I long, I pine all my days to travel home and to see the dawn of my return. Of course, I know many of you love Tolkien. His, his books and the movies made from them speak so plainly of this love of and longing for home, don't they? The great epic told in, in The Lord of the Rings was an adventure set out upon simply because of the love of home in the first place, the love for the Shire. Bilbo Baggins and The Hobbit constantly finds himself in the midst of his wildly fun, crazy adventures thinking of and longing for home. In the book, he's often quoted as saying things like, I just wish I was at home in and, 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 and my nice hole by the fire with the kettle just beginning to ring. He just longed for the comfort of home in the whole book. My family, we've been reading the Little House books recently before bedtime with the kids. And, and Laura Ingalls Wilder, she's written this series filled with traveling and adventure but still, it just keeps coming back to this theme of being and belonging at home with family, with safety. In one of the books, Laura herself says, home is the nicest word there is. And these are just a few examples. We were to survey all of the, the books written, movies, films, songs written that would speak to this love of and longing for a place called home. We'd be here for hours, days, weeks. And, and there's a reason that this theme is so common and prevalent in the stories we tell. It's because in each and every human heart, there's this universal yet deeply personal longing to feel at home, to find home, to be at home, to have a place of belonging and rest, a place wherein we are relationally known and fulfilled to have a place where we can go and there find 
peace and stability. We all possess what the, the renowned psychologist Carl Jung called this, this collective unconscious of this longing, of this aching for, for place, a sense of home. I know for some of us, this talk of home brings up some memories of, of places that are far from deserving of the title. Some of us have had experiences in places called home that have almost soured the name for us, I'm sure. And, and yet, in, in some sense, I think we know that the kind of that, that kind of pain some of us have experienced really shows us how deep and profound our longing for the real thing actually is, doesn't it? And then for, for others of us, I, I know many of us have homes when we do experience much of what we, we long for in a place called home. Some of us have grown up in and experienced now homes wherein we're known. We feel like we belong. We feel at rest. We have stability. And, and thank God for that. What a good and gracious gift. But even in the best of homes, don't we still have this nagging existential sense that they're still not all that they should be? That this world is not all that it should be? Don't we all experience this knowledge in our heart of hearts when we're really honest with ourselves that we've still not quite found what we're looking for? And that the kind of fulfillment that comes from being home is still, even in the best of lives and the best of homes, just out of reach. Well, we, we, we all experience what Lewis called this, this inconsolable secret of longing and aching and desiring what he calls this, this far-off country that we know to be home but have never met before. Lewis, Lewis calls it a secret because he says this. He says, we cannot tell it because it's a desire for something that has never actually appeared in our experience. But he also says, we also can't hide it either because our experience is constantly suggesting it. And we betray ourselves like lovers at the mention of a name. Home is a place we all long for. And it's something that the people of Israel all longed for. And we see this, this reference to this longing in Matthew's genealogy here. Right, so the past two Sundays, we've been looking at Matthew's genealogy of Jesus here. And we've looked at, at two individuals whose names serve as headings for sections of the genealogy. Abraham and David. And these two names serve as headings or hinges for this genealogy. And that's because of God's matchless promises to these two men concerning their offspring and what God would do through one of their descendants. However, there's a third heading here to Matthew's genealogy, which is not a name, it's an event, right? So verse 17 gives us the three headings. It says, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Also in, in verses 11 and 12 of the genealogy that we see prominent focus given to this event. It says that Josiah was the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel and the, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Now, of course, Matthew could have just continued on 
with the names, Jeconiah, Shealtiel, Zerubbabel, and not mention this event, this deportation to Babylon, but he specifically mentions this event, this event of Israel being sent into exile from their home. And with this not being a person, but an event, it obviously stands out to readers of this genealogy. It seems kind of weird that it would be here, doesn't it? It should stand out to us. Now, Matthew wants, specifically wants his readers to recall not just God's promises to Abraham and David. He wants us to recall the fact that Israel has been sent into exile by God and that they were still living in exile to the day of Christ's first advent. Uh, one Matthew scholar, uh, scholar rather, Patrick Schreiner, he draws attention to this reality when he writes this. He says, indeed, the one event Matthew names outside of Jesus' birth is the exile, which acts as a hinge for the genealogical structure and provides perspective for the gospel as a whole. He says, Matthew views the plot of Israel under the banner of exile in return. The king, therefore, comes to rescue Israel from exile. He's been sent for her lost sheep. This exile stretches farther back than the Babylonian exile, though. It begins with Adam in Genesis 3. You see, this genealogy doesn't come to us in a vacuum. It comes to us with this whole background and story. The story of God's presence with his people and his promises. And a prominent theme in this whole story is this theme of home and of exile, which is a theme that speaks to some of the deepest longings of our hearts. And that's because exile is not just something the people of Israel experience, it's something that we all experience, that we're all experiencing right now due to the exile of our first parents early on in Genesis 3. You see, Israel's story of home and exile is a part of this larger story of home and exile. It's almost like Russian nesting dolls. When you read the Bible, you see these large overarching themes, and within those large overarching themes, you see smaller stories that embody those same things. So it's the same thing uh, with, with this story. You know, Russian nesting dolls, you have the large nesting doll, and you kind of pop it open, and you take the smaller one out, and you pop that one open, and there's a smaller one in that, and so on and so forth, until you get to this teeny, tiny little nesting doll that doesn't open and can't fit any more nesting dolls in it. Well, the story of home and exile serves as kind of like those nesting dolls. There's this larger theme of exile encompassing the whole Bible and all of humanity, and within that larger narrative, there's a smaller story of exile involving the nation of Israel, and there are many other smaller stories of exile within that story. But, but to begin with, this larger story of home and exile, Genesis 1 and 2, shows us the origins of creation and humanity. It shows us humanity as we ought to be, humanity at home. In the beginning, God created all things, heaven and earth and the sea and all that's in them, plants and animals and planets and everything. And in the midst of this beautiful world that God had created, he placed humanity in a land called Eden, uh, which means delight, land of delight. And in the land of Eden, God planted a garden, which was meant to serve as this place where humanity and God could meet. It was like a, a temple. It was a place wherein heaven and earth overlapped. 
where God's place and presence and humanity's place and presence kissed each other, as it were. There's a place wherein God's people could live in God's favor and in God's renewing presence, and as a result, it was a place of joy and wholeness and abundance. It was a place where humanity, as a result of having perfect peace with God, also experienced perfect peace with one another and with the created order. And it's in this place that God made a covenant with our first parents, Adam and Eve. God placed them there in this garden to represent him. He called them to keep charge over the earth, to care for and cultivate the earth. And they were to simply trust and obey him and receive this mission as God's people and with him as their God. That that was the covenant. However, you know the story. They didn't trust and obey God. Instead, they rejected his purposes for them. And they, they rebelled against his good commands. Adam broke covenant with God. And because of this, humanity had to go. It was not possible for people who were so bad to live in the favor and renewing presence of a God who is so good. And so humanity was sent into exile, away from home, away from this place of peace with God and with one another. And even with the created order, humanity was sent into exile. Humanity's home was lost. And it doesn't take long for the effects of this to be seen and felt by Adam and Eve and their children. The well-known story of Cain and Abel shows that, that humanity was from then on not at peace with God, not at peace with each other. And, and just after the whole tragedy with Cain and Abel, we find that humanity is not at peace with the created order as well because of humanity's sin and depravity. God sends a flood to destroy and judge humanity, saving just one man and his family, Noah, and his wife, and sons, and their wives. And the Lord starts over, as it were, with, with a, a, a new kind of Adam, Noah and his family. There to be a new kind of Adam and Eve. It's seen in Genesis as being something of a new beginning, a new era, a new creation. However, this new beginning was a little too much like the first beginning. Because Noah and his family were far from perfect, and their offspring went on to live in utter rebellion toward God and rejection of his good purposes as well. And this exile from the garden eventually lands humanity in Babylon, in the city called Babel, right? And, and what we read of, of Babel in Genesis 11 is tragic. It's humanity collectively and collaboratively living in utter rebellion against God and his good purposes, living outside of God's favor, outside of his renewing presence, but desperately trying to make a home out of it. And that's what, what, what we see in, in Babel and what Babylon represents, humanity living in exile, humanity rejecting God's purposes and rebelling against him, but desperately trying to make a home of it. And this is where we all live, away from home, in exile, in rebellion against God, in rejection of his good life and purposes for us, all the while desperately searching and seeking for home, but it's always out of reach. And now if we, we kind of open the nesting doll, as it were, and we take out the next one, we see signs of hope. This is where we see the smaller story and how it fits into the larger story because of one of the peoples dispersed from Babylon, the Chaldeans. It was one of the Chaldeans that God called to himself and he made a precious promise. He called Abraham 
And he made amazing promises in his covenant with Abraham concerning his family that would eventually turn into this great nation. And God promised he was going to give this nation a land and a kingdom. And we see that this promised land described in the Bible, this, this promised land to Abraham and his family and this nation, it, the, the, the ways that the Bible describes it sounds eerily similar to what humanity had in Eden and in the garden. God promised a land to Abraham and to his family, which would become a great nation. He promised a land overflowing with milk and honey and fruitfulness. It was a place of abundance, a place of peace, a place of shalom, a land of delight. And best of all, God promised that he would dwell in this land with his people, in a tabernacle, and later a temple. And all of this is reminiscent of that garden and of Eden. It would be a place where God dwelled with his people again. It would be a place where God's favor would rest upon his people and his renewing presence would be there for them to enjoy. It would be a place where heaven and earth overlapped. It would be a place in which God's presence and humanity's presence would kiss again. It would be home. To make a very long story short, God fulfilled his promises to Abraham after Abraham. His descendants, the nation of Israel, lived in exile in Egypt, but God rescued them from exile, and he, he brought them to the promised land, and it was there that God dwelled among his people in a tabernacle and later a temple. However, just like Adam and Eve, and just like Noah and his family, this new beginning was too much like the old beginnings, much like God had made a covenant with Adam and Eve where he called them to trust him and obey him. God made an, a, a, a covenant with the people of Israel through a man named Moses, and God called them to be faithful to him and to trust him and obey him, just like Adam and Eve. And he told them that if they didn't trust and obey him, that they would be sent into exile, just like Adam and Eve and all humanity were in the beginning. As you know, it didn't take long for the people of Israel to rebel against God, to reject his good purposes for them, just like our first parents. In the time of the judges, God's people were rebellious. It says that they, they did what was right in their own eyes. In the times of the kings, God's people were rebellious. They worshipped idols. They oppressed one another. They disobeyed God's holy law. Of course, there were times that were certainly better than others. Under the reign of King David, Uzziah, Hezekiah, Josiah, the, the people fared well. But mostly what you see when you read Judges and Kings and Chronicles and all about the time of Israel and the promised Edenic land, what you see is tragedy after tragedy, evil upon evil, sin upon sin. It was so bad. The Lord says in Hosea 6, 7 of the people of Israel that like Adam, they transgressed the covenant Therefore, they dealt faithlessly with me. There they dealt faithlessly with me. 2 Chronicles 36, 15 to 16 summarizes the, the entire story well. It says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to the people by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. There was no remedy. 
And so eventually, during the time of Jeconiah and his brothers, the Lord sent his people into exile. Second Chronicles 36 go on, goes on to describe the event, the exile and deportation of Babylon. He says, therefore, God brought up against his people the, the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or age, on, on, on the elderly or the young, the male, female, no compassion this, this exilic, uh, this, this, this king of the Chaldeans had. He gave them all into his hand and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought into Babylon. And listen, they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths all the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So you can see, just as humanity had been exiled to Babylon before, so Israel had been exiled to Babylon here. Just like they were barred from the garden, here the temple is destroyed and the people no longer have access to God's renewing presence. And as you can see from what we just read, Babylon wouldn't rule over God's people forever. Eventually, Persia would defeat Babylon and rule over all the nations and peoples Babylon had conquered before. And eventually, the king of Persia would send some of God's people back to the land. And you can read about this in Ezra and Nehemiah. And it, it seems, when you're reading, it seems so exciting at first. You know, under the leadership of people like Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel, those who would return would attempt to restore the land, restore Jerusalem to its former glory. They got back to the land, and there they would rebuild the temple. But as you read, it's just not the same. They rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem, but as you read, it's just not the same. They were still under foreign rule. And if you read Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll, you'll see God's covenant people were still rebelling against him, still rejecting his good purposes for them. And worst of all, God did not dwell among his people as he had before in the temple. They were back in the land in some sense, but still in exile. They still had this overwhelming existential sense of just not being home. And this shows us, you see, exile, it seems, is not primarily a matter of geography, as it is living outside of the favor and renewing presence of God. Home is a place where things are made right and whole and peaceful, because God dwells with us there. That's what Israel was longing for. That's what we're all longing for. And exile is living outside of God's favor and renewing presence where things are broken as a result. And this is what Israel found to be their experience, even when they were back in the land. Enter Matthew's genealogy. Matthew wants us to see here that Jesus has come to rescue us from exile. This is why the exile places so prominently in Matthew's genealogy. And this is why Matthew 1 will go on to call Jesus Emmanuel, 
God with us in Matthew 1.23. You see, Jesus is God graciously come to dwell among his people again. Jesus is, Matthew wants us to see, God's answer to the problem of exile. Jesus is God's solution to the collective unconscious, this inconsolable secret longing of our hearts to be home again. This is why Matthew begins his gospel with the theme of exile. That's why he calls Jesus our Emmanuel. And that's why Matthew ends his gospel. He bookends his gospel with this theme of this, this promise from Jesus of God's presence with us. Matthew 28, 20 says, Behold, I am with you always, always, until the end of the age. You see, Jesus has come to bring the favor and renewing presence of God in our midst again. He is God with us. He has come to be our home and to bring us home. And he's done this by himself being exiled for us. Remember the whole reason that we're living in exile in the first place. It's because it's not possible for a people who are so bad to dwell with a God who is so good. But Jesus has come to be good for us. He's come to give us this new beginning which is not at all like those old beginnings. You see, he's come to be and was successful in being the faithful, trusting, obedient human on our behalf. And yet as the, the good and faithful one, he was exiled for us. He was cut off for us. Jesus went into exile. Symbolically, he was driven out of Jerusalem to be crucified to show that he was being exiled just as his people had been exiled. He's been exiled just as we have been exiled, and yet he is the only faithful one. You see this if you read on in Matthew's gospel. You'll see that Jesus was punished for sin. He who knew no sin became sin and was exiled for us. The one for whom all of eternity dwelled in the favor and presence of God was sent into exile crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was there, cut off, just as we deserve. But in his being cut off, there is redemptive power for those who believe. In his exile, Jesus has made a way for all who place their faith and trust in him to come back from exile themselves, to live in the favor and renewing presence of God again, to live as God's people in God's presence, and to be on the receiving end of all of God's precious promises. This is the good news of the gospel, friends. We can come home because of Jesus. And yet, you know, I say that, and I know that there's also this kind of nagging sense. Some of you, you're thinking this right now. There is a sense in which we're not home yet. And that's right. There's a sense, you know, Jesus has come to be God with us. He's with us until the end of the age. Right now, we live in God's favor and in his renewing presence. That's all true. But there's also a sense in which we're still not home, right? We're still not home in the, in the full sense of the word. There's, a, there's an already not yetness to our being home in this present time, isn't there? And that's why Matthew's gospel can speak about Jesus being God with us and of his presence with us always to the end of the age. Is there a sense in which our exile is over? We have the presence of God with us now through the Holy Spirit. 
The church is now a place and a people, like the garden and the temple, where in heaven and earth overlap, where God dwells among us, where Christ is with us by the Holy Spirit until the end of the age. That's amazing. It's amazing. The exile is over in one sense. And yet there's a, another very real sense in which we're still in exile. And the New Testament, <coughs> excuse me, will sometimes speak of, of the church, of us, as those living in exile. The reality is that we have wonderful gifts to enjoy on this side of Christ's first advent. We have reconciliation with God. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling within. We have the forgiveness of sins. We have a people and a place that we get to belong to, the church. This people that we get to call our family. Remember, I don't need to tell you. This world is not what it should be. We're not what we should be. Our homes, our church, our lives are still not what they should be. This world is not our home as it currently exists. One day Christ will return and heaven and earth will unite fully and perfectly. He will make all things new and all things right. There will be no more suffering or death or tears or pain anymore. There will be no more division or conflict. We'll be at perfect peace within ourselves and with one another and with the created order. And all because of this perfect peace with God that we will then possess as he will dwell with his people in fullness. In other words, we'll be home. There's an already not yet reality in this tension that we're continually coming back to in the season of Advent. We live, as the Apostle Peter puts it in 1 Peter 2.11, as sojourners and as exiles. We live as those not yet home in a sense, but because of Jesus as those who are on our way there. And so as those who are still living in, in, in the midst of the story of exiles, those living in the tension that we recall in this season of Advent, as those living in this age in which we celebrate the Christ and that he's come to be God with us, but also as those who are longing for a second coming and to be fully home then, we need to know what it looks like to live in light of this already home, not yet home reality of exile. So how do we live as people of home and exile? How do we live in this tension well? The first thing is to, to look homeward in the midst of life's pains. Look homeward in the midst of life's pains. As those who live in this time between Christ's two advents, we, we will inevitably meet with difficulty, with hardship, sickness, suffering. We'll meet with death. All of us will experience these kinds of pains in some measure. It's inevitable. We're not home yet. You'll get sick. We'll have a falling out with a dear friend. Children will rebel. Loved ones will die. Eventually, you'll die. This is reality. This is part of why we're all longing for home. And why the, it's, it's good news that our faith involves promise of these pains being one day replaced with the pleasure of home. That one day, the fullness of God's favor and renewing presence will utterly sweep this, the brokenness of this world away. And when we look toward this future home of ours in the midst of life's pain and brokenness, well, it may not actually do much to change the pain that we currently experience, but it can give us resilience and hope 
in the midst of life's pains. The Apostle Paul, he's getting at something of this when he's writing in 1 Thessalonians 4.13. He's writing to the Thessalonians, and, and he, he tells them, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. You see, there's this profound reality here that those who are grieving the loss of loved ones, of friends, of fellow brothers and sisters, Paul's saying, they're permitted to grieve, right? He doesn't say, don't grieve. He's saying, grieving is fully permitted and endorsed, but he says, don't grieve as those who have no hope. Don't grieve like an atheist. Don't grieve as someone who has no hope. You have hope. You can be resilient when suffering and saddened because you have this future world, this future home promised you in which these kinds of things won't happen anymore. And better yet, when they're all going to be restored, reversed, and resolved, in which death will be no more, and sorrow will be no more, and, and that really the present sufferings and sadness of this world are preparing you for that home. What could be better than that? It's no wonder that, that Tim Keller says that this promise of, of our future home it makes the best things in this life believable and it makes the worst things in this life bearable because it gives us resilience and hope to face the pains of this life with resilience and hope. So look forward, look homeward in the midst of life's pains. The second, I, I, would, I would encourage us to look homeward in the midst of life's pleasures. Look homeward in the midst of life's pleasures because of God's kindness. Not only experience pain in this life, we get to experience much pleasure in this world as well. To experience pleasure in our homes, in the church, in good friendships, and in, in, in long conversations with good friends that last into the night, and good food, and good drink, and the beauty of this creation, and marriage, and in parenting, and our jobs, and in caring for our homes. We experience much pleasure in this life every day, and thank God for it. Over earlier, I mentioned this, this inconsolable secret longing for home that Lewis wrote about in The Weight of Glory. And, and in that same passage there, he talks about how this longing is often awakened by the pleasures of this world. But he also says, he also talks about how we often seek to satisfy this longing in the pleasures of this world. He writes that these things, these pleasures, are good images of what we really desire, but if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself, they are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. You can see what Lewis is, is saying here. He's saying the pleasures of this life are good. They're good as far as they go. They're images of what we ultimately desire pleasures in this age are sense of a flower we've not found echoes of a tune we've not heard news from a country we've not yet visited but they're not the actual flower the actual tune the actual country we're longing for and if we seek to find what we're looking for ultimately looking for in these pleasures Lewis says they're going to break our hearts if you place the expectations of of your capital H home on your present lowercase h home, 
If you place those kinds of expectations on your family, your spouse, your children, oh, I mean, first you're being entirely unfair to them, and, and you'll inevitably crush them under the weight of your expectations. But you're also going to disappoint yourself because your family, your home, your spouse, your children won't meet those expectations. They'll fall woefully short and thus break your heart. If you look for your ultimate home, this ultimate pleasure in your work, you're going to overwork yourself, have a terribly unbalanced life. And then you're going to be utterly heartbroken whenever your work changes or you lose your job or retire. If you look for for your ultimate home in food or drink or friends or whatever, you're placing the weightiest of expectations on that which will inevitably buckle under the pressure. And you'll be heartbroken when those things fail you. And they will. Because they're never going to be fully what you're longing for. I'm, I'm convinced that so much of our heartbreak and sin in this life comes from misplaced, misdirected efforts to create the fullness of home here and now. So as those still in exile, but who are also heading toward the pleasure of our ultimate and eternal home, enjoy life's good gifts. Enjoy your work Enjoy your family, enjoy food and drink and friendship and enjoy life with God's people. Enjoy this beautiful world God created and placed us in. But let those pleasures serve as appetizers that increase your anticipation for the home to come. Let them be mere foretastes that heighten your hope. Let them be like movie trailers that excite you for the day of the film's release. Let them be scents that increase your longing to to actually find the flower. Echoes that increase your longing to finally hear the tune. News that increases your longing for the country you're going to one day arrive in and live in. And then lastly, as exiles and sojourners, we should live as people of home in the midst of exile. We should live as people of home in the midst of exile. You know, there's this this kind of peculiar text in Jeremiah, where in Jeremiah is writing a letter to God's people about their recent exile, and, and, and he's trying to, to get them ready for life in exile, and he writes to them in, in Jeremiah 29, 4-7, and listen to what he says to them. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, he says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Now, that's probably not what they expected to hear concerning their time of exile from the Lord, but, but there it is. Build homes, plant gardens, be fruitful, multiply, seek the shalom of the city of Babylon. And I wonder if you notice that all of that is Edenic language. There's gardens, there's marriage, there's a call to be fruitful and multiply, there's this pursuit and promise of shalom in the midst of it all. Those are all things present in instead of Eden in the beginning. 
Do you see here how the Lord was calling his people in exile to be in a Edenic community even in the midst of exile? To be a people, a community of home in the midst of exile. To give the city of Babylon and its citizens a preview, a picture of what our home is like and to experience in their community and life together something of what home is like for themselves, even in the midst of exile. That's what we're called to in the midst of our time of exile. As those who carry with us the very presence of our God. As those among whom Jesus dwells as Emmanuel. As those with whom Jesus is present until the end of the age. We are called to be a community in which something of our future home is felt and embodied. Our community, our church, our homes are to be something of a foretaste of our future home. In the way that we love one another. In the way that we serve one another, in the way that we, we seek to live at peace with one another and are kind toward one another and tender-hearted toward one another, and when we fall short, and we inevitably will, in the way that we forgive one another and are reconciled to one another. And all of this and more, we're to be a picture of home in the midst of a foreign land. We're to be this for one another, and we're to be this for the sake of our earthly city and our neighbors, that they might see in us something of what they themselves are longing for. And this longing we all share for home. We're called to be, to live as a people of home in the midst of exile, all the while celebrating that Jesus has come to make us home with us. To give us God's favor and his renewing presence again. All the while longing for this time of exile to come in its full conclusion. When Christ will make all things new. And to fully give us what we're truly longing for home. May we look to it in the midst of life's pains and pleasures. And may we represent it faithfully in our time of exile. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that as we come to the Lord's table that you would seal this word upon our hearts. <clears throat> Give us a, a foretaste of our, our coming home now as we come to receive the bread and the cup. Help us to see in it our future home when we get to eat and drink and share a meal with Christ in glory. Help us to, to increase in longing, but to also appreciate and to celebrate what you have given us in Christ's first advent, your renewing presence among us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.